If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by visiting chriscarl.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find links to both Patreon and PayPal, where you can make donations. Any and all support is massively appreciated, and a huge thank you to everyone that has supported thus far. mediums of photography so to have prints in your hand books in your hand i've been very very lucky to have been sent a couple of fantastic books by eli warren one of which is one of my all-time favorite projects and i think photo books is going to be a big key factor in what we're going to talk about today but before we move on to books in general and perhaps your book let's talk about how you first found photography so why did you pick up a camera for the first time my father forced me I don't know if it was, it was quite forced, but uh, my father is a photographer. So when I was very little, uh, I would join him uh, like, you know, most children join their dads on walks or uh, to their job or whatever. And um, I, sh- I must have shown some sort of interest in it because he uh, let me walk around with his, uh, I think the first one was his Canon AE1 um, back in the day and take pictures with it and then he would he would develop it at at, at the home at the house uh, in our dark room in the attic and um we would even make prints well i mean i say we but i was like five so it was most like he would make prints of my of my photos back then yeah even even enlarged uh prints you know like 30 by 40 um all from a very early age and and so that was kind of the the alpha uh, moment there. It was kind of bizarre, right? To think that you started photography on the Canon AE1. And if you were shooting digital now, really nobody year to year is starting out on the same camera because there's always a new version of a digital camera that's for beginners coming out every year. Nikon, Canon, and so on have a new version. With Sony, it seems to be every three months. I know someone who started film photography last year. And their first camera was a Canon AE one. It's kind of bizarre how well they've held up. You're totally right. It is it is remarkable how it seems like things are currently built or for the past period they've been built for uh you know, what do they call that? Uh, planned obsolescence. Yes. Uh whereas uh, you know, the the old stove top and the old laundry machine and all that kind of stuff, they they're still trucking and and same goes for a lot of those cameras, you know, we still have that Canon AE one. It's at my dad's house, uh, and it still works, you know. And that's he's probably he probably got it in the eighties, you know. So that's a long time now. And um, I think that there's that that is the one of the things that is beautiful about shooting film. You know, you're always there is some anxiety around: is film going to go away? Is it going to you know, is it going to uh, are, are my favorite stocks going to be canceled or is it going to get too expensive, which it kind of is quite expensive already now. Um, but that's different, you know, that's different from like, is my whatever latest Sony camera, is it going to be okay in two years, <laughs> yeah. let alone 20, 40, 60 years, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, on my desk right now, outside of photography, I've got uh, an iMac that's now getting on to be about four years old. And I've got a typewriter that is 40 years old and the typewriter mm. still works significantly, probably better 
in terms of efficiency than than the iMac in terms of just what they're supposed to do as a performative task. Your dad as a photographer, was it something that he was doing professionally and what was his photography like? Uh, he was, he started doing it as a, as a hobby and then it ended up getting a bit out of hand. And so he had, he ended up having, uh, exhibits all, all over the world and, uh, and, and it, but it remained uh, a side passion because, uh, you know, coming from where my family comes from, it was very, and the, and the era, you know, it was very important as, as someone like himself who was born, you know, just after world war two, like stability was, you know, the most important thing. So mm-hmm. while he was super passionate about photography and, and he was very serious about it and, and he still does it up to this day. Um, his, his safety, uh, was that he was always a teacher as well, a teacher at a, at a high school, a technical high school. So, um, that was really his main profession. And, but then photography took up just as much, perhaps more time and, and, and gave him so much of his inspiration and, and, and happiness and, and expression. And, you know, this, this is kind of a family thing. His father was a, a painter, an art painter. So it's just this kind of visual art thing, just kind of like is a, is a lineage thing for us. Yeah. I mean, it's something that uh, I feel like a lot of people go through. You said it, it got out of hand for him and and he obviously, I mean, that's a good kind of getting out of hand when you're exhibiting around the world. But uh, for a lot of photographers, it feels like they get to a tipping point where they kind of can't help but go all in with it or they have to really rein it in because A, it's not a particularly cheap endeavor and B, there mm-hmm. are actually situations like I found probably due to my complete lack of skill elsewhere, but I got to a point where I financially couldn't afford to not go into photography because of the money I was being offered to do photographic jobs compared to the normal job that I was doing at the time. And it, it made sense for me to move into it. And I think a lot of people reached that tipping point. Was What was the point where you really felt like a photographer as opposed to just someone taking pictures? Well, so I started as a kid, but then I also abandoned it as a kid because I fell in love with music at some point and uh, playing guitar and and just just music culture in general. And so, um, for a long time, I didn't do any photography. And then, uh, when I was living in New York city, um, which I moved there as a young adult when I was doing my internship and, um, it was, my internship was also in music. I was interning for Verve records, which is a jazz, uh, record label underneath, uh, the universal banner. And, um, I think, I think it must've been a few years into that period where I got a camera again, but it was just because I was going to go on a trip to India and I figured, well, one must take photos when you go on a trip to a special place like that. So, um, that was pure hobby. And then, um, I worked in music in New York city for about 10 years. And as that was coming to the 10 year mark, I was, I, you know, there were a lot of things, you know, a lot of things changed for me. The, the, um, the industry itself changed. This is when, when streaming started being a thing. So the economics of the business changed. And, um, I was also, you know, after a certain period, uh, the, the, the fun aspect, the joy that I was getting from the job was getting less and less. And, I kind of just saw that writing on the wall of the, of the business aspect of the, of music changing not right. for the better. And the joy aspect also kind of started changing. So 
I was in the fortunate position that I was at the time I was running my own record label, a small little indie record label. And I was able to kind of wind that down a bit. And because over, over the years I, you know, produced and released about, I think about 85 albums records. Wow. Um, and not, not by me, you know, there were like two by me, but everything else was by other artists, obviously. Um, but I, you know, it was a catalog. So I was able to, uh, stop releasing new music and, and continue it as a catalog label. And so that gave me the opportunity to take a little bit of time off and travel around the United States and, and just kind of like figure out what I was going to do with myself because my, my entire identity had revolved around being the music guy. You know, that was something I did for a long time. I was very passionate about, and I never really even thought about anything else. And so I decided, um, we got rid of our office and everybody went remote. And so I was just working out of a coffee shop in Brooklyn. And uh, I realized, you know, there's, I've worked so hard for, for this period and always in New York or other places that I had to fly to for music things, which was really exciting. But that also meant that I had barely seen any others of the interesting cities in the United States. So I had this idea that's like, you know, I, I could work out of a coffee shop, a coffee shop in, uh, in Brooklyn where I was living, but I could also work out of a coffee shop in Detroit where I'd never been or, uh, Portland, uh, Maine, where I'd also never been or all these other interesting cities. And so what I, what I, at the same time, what I was noticing was that a lot of my friends were moving out of New York. Um, there's these cycles where a bunch of creative young people move into New York. And then at some point, many of them move out of New York because they get to a certain age uh, or they have, you know, changed their interests or things are just getting so expensive. Right. And so I saw all these creative friends of mine moving to the cities that I was considering going to um, just for my personal curiosity. And I thought, huh, could be interesting to meet up with some of these creative folks in, in Nashville and New Orleans and Charleston, and just talk to them about why do you live here? Why not in New York? Why not in, in, in LA, the, the perceived centers of culture? Why are you being a creative person in these cities, especially those folks who are relieving those cities and going to these smaller ones. And so I figured, well, you know, so what I'll do is I'll work out of a coffee shop. I'll do my work and then I'll try to meet some of these people, take their portrait, and do a little mini interview with them about those, you know, the reasons that they live in that city and what's special about that community. Um, and so that was really much all, all of the idea. And there wasn't much of a goal aside from my, you know, satisfying my own, my own curiosity. And, um, as I started doing that, I got really into that. And in the third city that I was in, um, the first two cities were Seattle and Portland, Oregon, where I photographed and interviewed maybe let's say four or five people per city because mm -hmm. I was there for a week. Uh, but then when I went to the third city, Charleston, South Carolina, uh, I, I met this amazing guy, Derek, who was a barista at the coffee shop that I was working in. And he was like, you do not look like you're from here. What, what are you doing here? And so I told him like, okay, this is what I'm doing. This is a little project that I came up with for myself. And, um, he's like, Oh, don't you worry. I got you. And so he introduced me to all these interesting people, uh, the kind that I would like to photograph. And, um, instead of three or four or five, I ended up that week, week and a half in Charleston, I ended up photographing, uh, 40 
and interviewing wow. 40, you know? Wow. And so I barely did any quote unquote real work that, <laughs> that period because I got this took over, you know? So, um, but, but I felt very alive doing that. And I, I was like, Oh wow, this is really, um, special. This is uh, what a privilege to get to meet all these people and take their photo and, and hopefully, you know, document them in a way that makes them feel seen and that that is special to them as well. And so I was like, Oh, this is, I kind of let's, I guess I have to go back to Seattle and Portland because I can't have like 40 people for Charleston and like three people for Portland. And so I ended up going back and doing a bunch more people there. And then I ended up doing that in 12 different cities and, uh, publishing that as a, as a pro as a personal project. Um, one long form photo essay per city. So 12 chapters. And, um, it ended up being, uh, picked up by a bunch of little press outlets in the, in the arts world. And it got, ended up getting sponsored by Squarespace and MailChimp and, um, we transfer. And so uh, suddenly I was doing this a lot. I was still doing my music company because that was really the only thing that was actually paying me because these sponsorships were mostly just to offset costs, which was incredible um, to be able to do that. And then I, my, my timing was very lucky because right around the time that I was doing this, all these marketing campaigns started shifting from uh, using, you know, beautiful models to tell stories to using regular people to tell stories, whether it's, customers of the, of the company that's advertising or even employees of the people that are advertising. And so my whole aesthetic fell right in line with that. And I started getting phone calls and, Hey, we love this project. Could you do a campaign for us where we talk to several of our customers and we want to have these kinds of environmental portraits, just like for your project. And so I started doing that and, you know, it took about, you know, the, the project itself, uh, which is called one of many and lives on its own website, one of many.co. Um, that project took me about a year, maybe a year and a half to, to shoot and, and publish. Um, and then towards the end of that year is when I started getting those phone calls and, and it's just kind of slowly snowballed. And at some point I was looking at my uh, income and I realized that I had just tipped. I had just gone from, um, where, where music was still my main income and, and photography was kind of slowly catching up to where photography took over. And so that was the moment where I realized, or where I kind of told myself, Oh, I guess I'm a professional photographer now. <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to be really annoying to the people listening to this and I'm going to go right back earlier on to something you brought up at the beginning there. You, you mentioned obviously art being in the family yes. and being Dutch yourself and then traveling to New York, which to me is one of, one of a few cities in America that will accept art as being a trajectory for a young person's life. I think in a lot of states in America, you, you have to have something for safety. You have to have like a trade or you have to have something that's what that would be quote unquote a real job. And then art can be a side thing, but it can't be your main focus. New York is very much one of the few places it can be your main focus. And coming from a country where culturally, working in art isn't really seen as a real job. We had, even during the coronavirus pandemic, we had a little bit of outrage where our government ran an advertising campaign telling people who worked in the arts to basically retrain and do something useful. So it, to, to pursue anything within the arts takes a little bit of rebellion 
to, to sort of to go that way. And I think a lot of British art and a lot of probably um, Central American art, Central USA art shows a similar sort of streak. To come from a country, I feel like Holland, having been there a, a couple of times myself and Belgium being very similar, and I know you guys hate that being said, um, but having... No, we don't hate Belgium. We love Belgium. Okay, that's fine. I, I don't feel as bad then. But having been there a yeah. few times and seen the, the, the onus and the importance that's put on the arts in, in countries like that, how important was that to you to feel secure and confident that you could, you could sort of take this on? Well, what was actually, just to kind of go into what you just said, what was actually very interesting about the One of Many project was that what I found was the opposite of what you said. And, and what you said was more along the lines of what I had also anticipated finding, but I ended up actually discovering it was the opposite, meaning that, um, you know, I spoke to a young guy, he was maybe, I would say 22, 23, and he had moved from, I think like Wisconsin to, uh, to, uh, Denver, Colorado. And he was, he was, living with his cousin and some of art, some other artsy folks, like in a big house, kind of, you know, a bunch of roommates, uh, for very cheap. I, I think I, I remember his rent was like $250 a month. And, uh, because they were, you know, there were like, let's say like six or eight people living in this house and they were all young artists. So that's, it's cool to split a house that many ways because yeah. you're still in that age where that's fun. And so, <laughs> Uh, he, he, I talked, I, I asked him, well, why'd you move to Denver? And he was like, well, you know, and his, uh, his craft was making uh, leather goods. So he was making, he was teaching himself how to make leather wallets and, and, uh, you know, pen cases, things like that. Very beautiful. And so he said, well, you know, I could, I could have moved to New York, but I would have been working two or three wait, waiting jobs, you know, being a waiter. And then maybe on like Sunday night, I get to like dive into my leather working and like learn that. Whereas here, because the rent is so expensive, whereas here in Denver, I, I live with my cousin, my rent is 250 bucks. Um, I was able to, you know, which I can make very fast, you know, with a, with any kind of regular little job, whether it's wait, being a waiter or maybe delivery person or whatever it might be, because he didn't, you know, he didn't have any other responsibilities aside from paying rent having food and dedicating himself to his craft. So he said, right. I can do that here and all these hours can go into my craft. And I think at the time where I met him and photographed him, he had been living in Denver for maybe six months, maybe, maybe nine months. And he had already gotten to the point where the local Apple store was carrying some of his little leather wallets. Well, that would have never happened in New York because there's a, a million people trying to do that, you know? Yeah. And so what I actually found was the reason that all these young people were leaving New York city or no longer moving to New York city and instead staying closer to home, but going to the, you know, the bigger city in that area or the more creative city in that area was because it was financially more possible to be an artist or a craftsman or a craftswoman. Um, and, and be financially okay. Well, I feel like, yeah, there's, there's definitely something very ironic about, we're seeing with London right now, it was trending the other day that people are trying to get out of London as quickly as they can because the living costs just keep going up and up. And I know New York is pretty famous for being extremely expensive. San Francisco, same thing. All, all places that do seem to have more of an allowance for, or more, more. I, I'm trying to think of the right way to put it, but there's more of an acceptance of people pursuing art, but they seem to 
put the living cost at a state where people that are pursuing art probably can't necessarily afford it or at least with, live well um, and still do what they would need to do to, to pursue art, like you said. Um, something else that you brought up actually uh, when you spoke about music was the introduction of streaming and how that kind of flipped the business of music around. The internet itself obviously changed a lot of things and it's made information a lot more readily available. But I feel like, and I might be completely wrong again here, but I feel like a lot of photographers now, even though the information is so much more readily accessible and almost always free, they don't seem to do their due diligence and study and they seem to spend a lot of time making stupid mistakes and delaying their own progress rather than going through like a shared experience where they can look at how other people have done things or what techniques other people have used to get through certain problems. And I just feel like the internet is in a lot of ways an amazing tool that's just not really being utilized, especially by photographers. Yeah, it's a complex issue, I think, because I I do think that it's never been easier to learn something about photography because where previously you might have to attend a photo program or learn from books uh, that can be quite expensive at times Uh, these days, you know, many young photographers that I meet and speak to have learned everything from YouTube and have gotten quite far already with, with those skills and including a bunch of uh, uh, film photographers. Uh, So there is a a very um, rich online learning culture available often for free for those who are seeking it out. I think, uh, I think one thing that's tricky is that we, you know, we can get caught up as a visual artist or really any kind of artist uh, in spending too much time talking about our work on social media and not enough time studying how to get better. But, um, I think in terms of like the ability to learn and get started, things have never been better. Well, I mean, I, I spent uh, the day today and, and a little bit of last night as well, after being out going through, uh, the newsletter that you put out and, as much as I feel like, like I think everybody does, you get sort of comfortable in and validated in where you are. You think you know enough and going through your newsletter, I kind of realized there's a lot of things that have gone on that just looking at it in a different way, there's certainly different ways to approach certain problems. And one of the ones that really actually stuck out to me, um, and I really would highly recommend people give this a, a binge read like I did, but there was uh, five beliefs that hold us back. And there was one that really s- stood out, which was about appealing to everyone, the feel that you need to appeal to everyone. And um, that kind of seeking uh, kind of a numerical validation almost with, with Instagram and the likes and subscribers on YouTube or whatever. How, how much of an issue do you think that appeal to everyone or how much do you think that issue of appealing to everyone actually comes back to things like Instagram's sort of, you know, numbers game when it comes to likes and follows and so on. I think it's, it's quite a uh, widespread issue. I think we all, and anyone that's active on social media and in some way, shape or form, and at some point has had to deal with that, you know, the things are stacked against us as users of those apps there, you know, they have, uh, my little joke is always that the uh, most brilliant minds in the world used to work on getting uh, a spaceship to, to the moon. And these days the most brilliant people work 
as uh, essentially addiction facilitators for tech companies. <laughs> right. Um, you know, when you, when your job, when you're a PhD in computer science and you're so smart and your job is to try to enhance the uh, user experience, which then results in uh, ideally for the company, often more time in app, as they say. So like the user spends more time on the app, that's good for the company, but that's not necessarily good for the person or I mean, at some point, it's definitely not good for the person, for the user. So I think we all, we all deal with that. We all deal with the fact that uh, at some point you may suddenly realize that the way that you're shooting has been influenced by the things that do well on social media for you. So that can be stylistically, aesthetically, but even as funny as I real, at some point, this is a few years ago, I realized I was only shooting vertical photos right? and, and I hadn't made that conscious decision, but the point, the, the reason for that in large part was the fact that I only post vertical photos on social media, right? Because a horizontal photo on a, on a vertical screen, which is what a phone is just doesn't really translate very well. Um, but both in terms of, just my personal experience looking at it, but also in terms of the engagement that that photo might get. So we are, you know, we're being uh, essentially manipulated and we are active participants in that. Of course, it's not all on them uh, to change the way we create. And I think that applies to all of us. And I think we have to be very mindful of that and make sure that it's not the only thing that we do. Well, do you feel like the digital viewing format like, you know, looking at m- most of the time, the way that we view photography now is, is on phone. I feel like the digital viewing format it's is actually screen, something that's backlit. There's all kinds of issues with term, in terms of color, in terms of the way that things are lit and the way that it actually renders on a phone compared to, say, in print. I don't think it has to. I think it's also maybe somewhat pointless to know the answer to that question because it is here and it's not going anywhere. Um, right. and so you can of course make to make the decision to, uh, to not, uh, work with that format, but then, you know, who gets to see your work? <laughs> not that many people. Um, so I think that's just something that we have to do, but do I think it's ideal? No, certainly not. Uh, but I, I do think it's a vital part of how, how images are consumed. Uh, and and how, and therefore how images are created. And so I think that is why that's in part, why I started my newsletter, uh, which is called process, because not only did I want to share, uh, you know, literally the process of how I make work, I also wanted to have a different, uh, venue for sharing work. I wanted to be able to share horizontal photos for once. I wanted to be able to share uh, work that doesn't really suit uh, social media, Instagram, uh, for, for aesthetic reasons or whatever. I want to be able to share contact sheets. I want to be able to show how this shoot came about with some behind the scenes stuff or how this client, uh, changed their mind on something, all that kind of stuff, you know, in a slower, more intentional way. And I realized this was never going to happen for me on social media because that's not what that's built for. And so I decided to, to build my own venue for that, which is what this newsletter became. And, I think, you know, many people may consume that newsletter on their phone, but it is 
you know, it's a generally speaking, a, a longer read. It's more in depth. It's more, it, it, you're, I think as a reader myself, I would be more enticed to read that newsletter on my iPad or on my computer because I want to really sit with it and, and read through it and make notes and things like that, or, or just enjoy the images in a larger, uh, in a larger uh, ratio. So, um, that was kind of my solution to that. So to, to the fact that I personally was dissatisfied with, um, only sharing my work on the little screen of the phone on social media, uh, for all the reasons that I just mentioned, I just wanted to have a different venue that felt more intimate, felt more open, uh, felt more mine. Well, you mentioned about how your work was affected by decisions you were making, not necessarily consciously, you know, constantly going back to vertical images, because I guess that suited the format where you were sharing it in terms of in terms of finding your voice as a photographer, what does it actually mean to find your voice and how much of a say can you actually have in it compared to what your mind kind of does without you knowing? It's a good question. Um, I don't know if I know the answer to that question as far as like how much choice do you have in it? For me, I will say that the, the photographs and the, shoot experiences that I'm most pleased with that I'm that I feel most alive from or after are the ones where I'm not doing much thinking at all. I'm, I'm, I'm channeling, I'm just instinctually moving and instinctually taking shots a certain kind of way. And as someone uh, who already has a tendency to think too much and to be perhaps overly analytical or, spend too much time inside of my head. Part of what I love about photography is that it gets me out of my head, uh, whether that's uh, for a shoot where I'm collaborating with someone like a model or whether I'm on a photo walk, like what my upcoming book ended up being from uh, turned turn into all those kind of things. Part of the reason that I do this is, is that it's meditative for me and it is something that gets me out of my head. And so I can't say for me personally that I've made a lot of conscious decisions as to what my voice is supposed to be. Of course, I, I read a lot of photo books. I love watching films and all of that. And, you know, I love observing in, in, in real life all the time. And so all of those things influence what my voice becomes. And I think that's a never ending process. It's always evolving. Um, but I, I don't know if there's a lot of conscious thought with it. I think I like it that way. One thing that I noticed from speaking, this is the 152nd podcast and I've run workshops in the past. I've gone to photography socials. I've spoken to countless photographers just privately, either online or in person. And something that stands out to me a lot with photography and, and I had a, a brief foray in music and previous to that, I worked uh, as a pastry chef is that photographers seem to be very, very obsessed or very focused on impressing other photographers. And most of the time, I think financially, that's not going to be useful if you want it to be a career, unless you're going to be either selling them a product or selling them a tutorial or selling them something like that. But in terms of actually sort of validating yourself or feeling validated as, as a creative, as an artist or as a photographer, however you want to define it, how, how unimportant is it to impress other photographers? <laughs> well, I have to say that I, I do not think about that very much personally. Okay. I have, 
uh, you know, of course, if there's a very well-known photographer whose work I've long admired and he says something or she says something uh, nice about my photos, I'm going to be over the moon, of course. But I'm not thinking about um, that at all when, while I'm shooting. And I'm not thinking, I'm not making any choices based on that. I'm, I'm purely trying to satisfy uh, one, my own curiosity and two, my own um, uh I guess discerning eye for what I think is beautiful. I, the way the way I feel is when I share when I share my work, I'm not sharing it in a way that it's like, do you like it? I'm sharing it in a way like, I love this. Look at this, guys. Right. You know, and, and obviously <laughs> that doesn't mean that, that I'm the best photographer in the world because clearly I'm not. But I do feel uh, generally uh, very pleased with uh, something that I've gotten from most, most shoots, you know, of course there's a, there's a lemon in there here and there, but for the most part, I come out of every shoot with something that I like and whether it's personal work or, or client work, you know, my, my most recent issue of, of process, the newsletter was, was specifically about a client shoot and how I apply my little rule of one for you, one for me. So in this case, it was portraits for a musician and uh, for her or for electronic music musician and DJ. And she, her label needed images for um, her EP release and kind of a press announcement around that. And they had a certain uh, vision, which was very beautiful, uh, simple, and similar to some of the work I've made in the past. But I also had some more experimental ideas for them. So the way the way I like to work is that I'll get what you need, but I also want to get some of the stuff from me. So one for you, one for me. And of course, uh, and I described this in the newsletter. I, I'm not going to go shoot the thing for me until I know I have the thing for you. Right. Cause that's, what's most important. I'm being paid to, to do a job. So right. that job has to be done first and foremost. So, but if I feel, okay, I got, I got some shots that will satisfy this element. Let me experiment for a second. And so I love doing that. And that's also a form of finding my voice. So that's what I did. And, and, and in many cases, and in this case as, as well, what ends up happening is, we've done the pictures that they wanted and then we start experimenting and we start flowing and being more free. And then we get something that's quite different really. And that ends up being what they choose, which is very satisfying for me. So to go back to your question, I don't really care that much generally speaking about what my uh, colleagues think. I care about what my friends think of course, but it's pretty much all in my own head. And if I like it, I like it. Uh, and I'm not going to be, you know, like I said, of course, I super appreciate it. And I'm very humbled by anyone who sends me a message that, that says, I really like this photo, or I really was inspired by this. Of course, that makes me feel good, but it's not a requirement uh, for me. And so what I am very happy with is when uh, real people, especially the ones in the photos, like the photos. So when I take a portrait of someone that's supposed to be like simple, quote unquote, boring photo for for their uh, job website or whatever. And, and we end up playing around and getting something special, something more artistic, and they make it their Facebook profile photo. That's that makes me excited, you know, or when the client is blown away by, by something that, you know, that when I'm over delivering and I'm giving them what they ask for, but also something else that they end up that I of course like better. And they sometimes also do. And they pick that, that makes me happy. We said at the beginning, sorry, I said at the beginning about my 
sort of current drive for picking up photo books, my love of, of different photo books and having received quite a few in the last few months that have, to me, I, I think there's nothing quite like having a photo book because it, it's assembled in an order that the, it's not just a, an image to image situation where you can look on someone's Instagram or someone's website, but it feels like there's a lot more thought has gone into the way something's being presented to you. Not just the image, but if there are words that come with it, if there's a theme, you know, how that theme's portrayed. I think you get more of a sense of the sense of humor or the the sense mm. of personality of the artist based on the book. Um, and before we head into the inevitable main event of this, which is talking about your new project, that's that's just, um, if you don't mind, I'll let you frame it because I don't really want to speak on your behalf. What is The Observers? The Observers is a project that I started with my friend and collaborator, Paul Jun, who's also a photographer. And um, both of us uh, were and are photo book obsessives. And, and so um, we would have lunch a lot. He used to work for an organization named Creative Mornings, which was a, which is an amazing company and, and their office is right below my studio in Brooklyn. And so we would have lunch a lot together just because we got along and, and we had some common interests, including photography. And so we would talk about uh, photo books quite a bit. And I'd been thinking about, um, something that I felt was missing, especially, well, really anywhere. I was going to say, especially online, but I guess really anywhere, which is, you know, as a person who loves photo books, there's, there's not a whole lot of resources out there to uh, learn about which photo books are really the must haves or, or must look at. Um, and so we tried to solve that problem and we were brainstorming about this. And, you know, aside from the, you know, every now and then like the annual, like best photo books of 2020 uh, list, which comes out in January or December. Other than that, there wasn't really much to go on. And so we, we, we decided to try to solve that problem and then came to the conclusion that like, well, who would we want to recommend photo books for us to check out? And, and we, we said, well, our favorite photographers. And so that's what we did. So we interviewed uh, we interviewed photographers from different generations and and different places in the world and different backgrounds about what their favorite photography photography books are, and then we talk about those photography books. And then on the Observer's website, what we do is uh, we publish those interviews, including the book descriptions, and then for each book um, that they mention. Uh, there's a, uh, a buy button and, but there's also a library button because as you know, photo, photo books are, are quite expensive and not everybody's in the position to purchase a photo book all the time or even ever. Um, but with this beautiful system that we, that we're tapping into, if you click the library button, regardless of where you are in the world, it'll tell you what the nearest library is that has that book to go look at. I mean, it's, it's not just the fact that it's, it's like you said, it's something that's been missing. And I think photo books are a dangerously underestimated part of photography. Mm. Um, and I think when you discover them and when you, when you pick up the first one that really gives you that feeling, it's, it's uh, drug-like the way you want to keep chasing it. You want to keep finding the next one. And um, I've got, uh, like I said, the Eli Warren ones, I've got a Steve McCurry one that I just, every couple of days I end up finding myself picking it up. Or even if it's been a, a week or two weeks and I haven't picked it up, I pick it back up. And it, you just feel like you're opening it again for the first time. It's about it's about the way things are laid out and presented to you by the creative themselves. I actually love the way that the Observer's Instagram page is, is laid out as well, because you, you have these fantastic little quotes which kind of draw you in. And these wonderful little artu- uh, cartoony, caricature-y style images. Um, 
And how much thought went into sort of the layout of that ahead of time? Because one thing I have noticed from reading your newsletter is quite often you're talking about, you know, it's better to go and do something rather than to overplan it and end up doing nothing because circumstances don't work out or, you know, Mm. you end up kind of burying yourself in in the planning stage. Um, This looks so clean and nicely put together. How much planning actually went into putting this together? Um, A bit, but not too much because... Yeah, that's that is my belief that it's better to just get something started and 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 this is a this is a um this is a concept that that kind of comes from the tech industry which is to first you want to have a, a minimal viable product which means like the smallest version of the project or the product and 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 that's what you use to test the market to see if people are interested and and if they are then then you scale up from there then you start building it out and making it um, you know, like for example, uh, first you maybe launch a, a product, uh, like a special new mouse for your computer. That's especially great for photo editing. I'm just making this up and to test the market, you make uh, a bootleg version basically for yourself first. And then you make one for Kickstarter and then you see if there's a demand and that's your minimal viable product. And, and if there turns out to be a demand, there's going to be a second version of the product. It's going to be even better. And so that's how I try to do most projects. And that's, that's the same way that we did uh, the observers, which is just um, we're actually uh, in, in about a month or two going to launch the third season, which will, which will um, feature a, a redesign, a complete rebuild of the website. It's still the same illustrations all by Jeffrey Phillips, an amazing Melbourne based illustrator uh, and also a former office mate from that same office. Um, and um, instead of the minimal viable product, which is what we have right now, which is built on Squarespace, very simple, very clean, white and, and illustrations. We're, we're moving, we're keeping the aesthetic, but we've fully expanded it into, um, I guess a, just a more evolved version of that aesthetic. It's still black and white. It's still illustrations, but it's now, you know, at this point we have 60 interviews and, and over 300 books that we've recommended on this website. And so we've outlasted the uh, functionality of, of Squarespace and we had to move it to a higher platform, but for, for a good reason, for the reason that it was successful, it was popular. We've proved uh, our place in the, in the market, if you will. And so now we in, we're investing in making it a better version of that. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's so nice to have something where people are speaking passionately about something they like on the internet, because most of the time the internet seems to be a space for people uh, to speak with quite a lot of volatility about things they don't like. So it's always nice to have a yes. positive place, <laughs> especially that expands your horizons creatively. And it, I, I, th- I feel like the product that you put out is quite often, a, um, in terms of its photography or music or whatever, is quite often produced through what you consume as opposed to, you know, like we said earlier about the subconscious versus the conscious. I think the more that you are consuming high quality art, you know, you're giving yourself a, a varied diet of genres and creatives and so on, then what you put out tends to be more, uh, more a fulfilled product from your point of view. Obviously product being a bit of a capitalist way of putting it, but it's more of a fulfilled product because it's, it's the culmination of all of the things that inspire you and having uh, somewhere for people to go that they can find different inspiration. They probably wouldn't find uh, just from sort of standard scrolling, as most of us seem to spend our time doing in lockdown, is is a wonderful thing. And and speaking of lockdown, something else that I noticed in uh, in the process in your newsletter was 
that I wasn't the only person that was feeling a sense of creative par- paralysis mm. um, in lockdown. And, and to be honest with you, lockdown for, for me has been extremely difficult. Um, I think one of the hard parts of it in England, and obviously it's been different in different parts of the world and different people take it on in different ways. For me, the hardest part has just been trying to figure out when it is that I can start to gear myself back up to to be a functioning human again, as opposed to just a vegetable trapped inside of a, a small apartment and, um, and trying to get my brain back into, into functioning and so on. That creative paralysis during lockdown isn't something that seems to have bothered everyone. It seems like you've actually used the last sort of 12 to 15 months in a much more creative way. So I think that's as good a segue as I'm humanly capable of doing. Let's, let's talk about what you're really here to talk about. Let's talk about this project. Well, let me say one more thing just to, to amplify what you were saying about photo books. I think, um, I think there, you're totally right when you say that there's very few things better for growing as a photographer or visual artist or whatever the thing is that you do than reading books. And uh, especially for visual arts, because reading a photo book means you're calmly looking at an image in a quite a large image, usually compared to the phone, which means you can really look at what do I actually like about this image? If you're scrolling on the phone, it's like it barely stops moving before you double tap it and it goes away. So how are you really Mm -hmm. studying composition? How are you really noticing um, what it is about that photo that appealed to you? It it becomes uh, kind of a Wally-esque activity, Wally, the Pixar movie. Yeah. Oh, that's just kind of like Pavlovian. Whereas with a photo book, I, I forget who said this, but I read somewhere uh, a quote from someone once that said, um, pound for pound or, or dollar for dollar, there's nothing, there's no better investment in, into your photography than buying a photo book more than a ca- new camera, more than a new lens, more than whatever other things you can buy, because you can truly, study the actual work and, and learn from it just from whether it's osmosis or whether you're being very intentional about it. And and you're, you're looking at, okay, what are the lines here? What do I, why is this image moving me? Why is this image not moving me? You know, all that kind of stuff you can do with a photo book. Um, so, you know, that's what we're hoping with observers to kind of like facilitate, to just remind people of that because there's a whole generation that didn't really grow up with a lot of book things for fun or for, for, you know, only for learning that they might not felt like doing like just school stuff. And so, um, and hopefully that will get more folks to, uh, pick up a book. And again, you don't have to own a photo book to be inspired by it. You can just go to the library or even, you know, some shops, you can just browse them. Yeah. A hundred percent. And let's talk about your book. Let's go for for what it is that you've come up with as uh, as a, an alternative to my creative paralysis? Well, I mean, I will say that I totally relate to what you said. It's not like uh, like uh, it's been like uh, you know a, a jolly good time for me either. But um, uh, the paralysis uh, only lasted for so long because I c- couldn't handle it anymore. <laughs> so you know, my 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 bread and butter, my general photography is what we talked about before: environmental portraiture. And most of that uh, these days, whether it's for commercial campaigns or for editorial uh, work, uh, comes from is fed by my habit of 
street portraiture. So uh, with that, I mean, like I, I run around cities fast paced. No, obviously not now, which is what the point I'm getting to, but fast paced running around cities, spotting interesting people, stopping them, having a little conversation with them, taking their portrait if they're okay with that, and then keeping in touch with them. And and oftentimes when I shoot a commercial campaign for, for uh, you know, whether it's a tech company or any kind of company, I end up casting people that I've met that way on the street. Um, and that was gone. You know, I was, you know, I, I had been traveling the world for, a, for about two years in different cities, three, three days, uh, sorry, three months at a time or so. And then, um, got to Vancouver, Canada, uh, which was supposed to be another two, three months thing. And then after a month, borders closed, COVID happened and, everybody was staying inside. So, so I couldn't, you know, everything stopped for me. I couldn't do street portraits anymore because there weren't people on the street. Uh, all my work went away because, you know, budgets, budgets disappeared. Um, Mm -hmm. and the state of the world was just so insecure that all that kind of just went away. And so to keep myself busy, I had to really, um, to escape that paralysis, which I definitely felt I had to come up with something. And I'm a very uh, routine based person. And that gives me a feeling of stability because, you know, being a freelance photographer is not the most stable uh, existence, similar to being a touring musician or any, any of that kind of stuff. Uh, So giving myself a job uh, in this case was I was in Vancouver, I was in a suburb. So there was definitely nothing happening. Um, especially during COVID, but I gave myself the job of going on a daily photo walk every day, two, three hours. And instead of uh, running around fast in urban, in urban areas and spotting people, I I had to start walking slowly in a suburb with no people. Um, and, and, and I had to really switch up my whole method and slowly discovered this other method that, that ended up growing into this project. And so I, I started really training myself to notice the, what I would, I would have been calling the, um, the small bits of beauty and the little wonders that exist all around us that we usually, or at least I should speak for myself. Usually I would rush right by. So it could be the way that, um, this was in spring when I started this project. So it could be the way that flowers were coming out of the ground. It could be the way that the, the shadow of a basketball rim was hitting the, the garage door. Cause again, I was in a suburb, you know, all those kind of little details around me that had so much beauty that I totally ignored or didn't even pay attention to previously. I, I kind of taught myself to pay attention to, and, and it became a meditative practice every day, two, three, two, three hours. I would go out there, shoot, I would shoot film. I would shoot digital at the same time. And I would get home, dump to dump to files, put the rolls away. And it, it was a thing that gave me a, a grounding. It gave me an anchor in my day to, um, you know, not feel completely lost in all of this. And, and slowly I started seeing patterns appear in this work. And every day I would just go out there again. And some days I didn't feel like it, but I did it anyway, because it was my job that I gave myself. And, uh, I did that for 123 days in a row until I had to leave Vancouver. And, uh, that means, you know, about 35,000 images or so. Um, it also means I had my phone with me cause I would listen to a podcast or, or, or music sometimes. And so I also know that that means 1.6 million steps. That's what I, what I, what I walked. Wow. 
which, tra- which translates into about 1200 kilometers. Um, again, a, you know, over 123 days. So, um, it, it taught me or retaught me again, that if you show up every day and do a small thing that it really compounds at the end of that, I had 1200 kilometers of walking 35,000 images, a whole new way of looking at the world. And after, you know, after I was doing it for a few weeks, I was like, Oh, well, maybe in addition to just being my, my meditative therapy, maybe this could be a project. Maybe there'll be some good photos in here. I could, I could sell some prints from, from this. And then a few weeks later, a few, a few months later, I was like, well, you know, I, I kind of like this stuff. Maybe I could make a zine. It could be cool. Making I've never made a full on zine. I could make a zine. And then, you know, I ended up going for so long that I was like, well, I wonder if I have enough for a book. And so at the end of this, I realized I do have enough for a book. And so now we have a book coming out about this project where I taught myself how to see better. And and the project, the book is called notice because that's the exact practice of what I was doing. I mean, with, with regards to looking at it sort of develop. And again, it's kind of that subconscious versus conscious situation. You said that you started to notice patterns. You went out on that, that first day, that first, it was literally just a scheduling thing to give yourself uh, a distraction, I guess, from what was going on and to give yourself a routine. Uh, When you look back at it now, do you think that there was some part of you that was maybe trying to launch a project or trying to launch something bigger than just going out for a scheduled walk? Well, I, I do love thinking in terms of bodies of work. And so, um, I knew I was only going to be there in Vancouver for a certain period. I didn't know how long because uh, you know, at the beginning of COVID, I, we didn't know if it was going to be, uh, you know, something that would blow over in two months or if it was going to, we certainly didn't think it was going to last this long. Let's say that. Um, yeah. And so I didn't really have enough information to, to work with and think ahead of like, Oh, this is going to be a long-term project. But I did think, well, while I'm here, I might as well do something that, that has the potential to uh, produce a body of work that is thematically related. I didn't know what it was going to be. I, I just knew, you know, if I'm sitting at home, it's certainly not happening. So I might as well start walking around and see what happens. And so there wasn't a whole lot of thought behind it, aside from the fact that I need a routine. <laughs> this is a routine. I mean, in in terms of shooting for the project, did it, did it, did it become like a point where it switched from, you, you said you noticed these patterns emerging. Did you then start l- looking for things that fitted that pattern so that it would, it would add to the body of work or were you continuing to allow what you saw to kind of dictate what you were shooting? Well, there was not a whole lot of change. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm walking the same neighborhood 123 days in a row. It's not a right. very large neighborhood and it's a suburb. So there's, right. if I would, in, if in my two or three hour walk, if I would see uh, one or two uh, humans and uh, maybe three cars, that was a lot, you know? And so um, <laughs> I was le- letting myself be led by what was available to me of and the beauty and the maybe irony isn't the, is, isn't the right word but the, i guess the beautiful discovery of of this project or one of them for myself is the fact that uh as someone who is a world traveler who's always in different places for to to discover interesting things i discovered in the same tiny quote unquote boring neighborhood 
uh, and I'm saying quote unquote, cause it's not boring, but it would appear to, to me previously to have been quite boring. It just turned out it's not. I discovered this whole universe of beauty right around me. And so I, my, my whole process of shooting this work was just to, to pay attention and to notice that beauty. So what evolved in that period of, of my daily walks was my ability to notice things. Everything around me didn't change. I just got better at seeing it. Of course, there was also the fact that I was started, I started it in spring and I did it through whole, all of spring and all of summer or most of summer. And so there were, there were things that changed by, by virtue of it being a different climate. Uh, you know, I would see certain flowers emerge in people's front yards and then die again because it was end of that flower and then other flowers coming instead. And I would see, I would feel a lot more in tune with the world around me by paying better attention and noticing those kinds of things. I would have not previously noticed, Oh, look at this corner that I've walked by 700 times. Now there's roses. Whereas before there were tulips or, you know, whatever, just making that one up. Um, well, you just said tulips because you're Dutch and that, that, felt, that felt necessary. Yeah. <laughs> and I did actually photograph tulips there. So <laughs> do you feel like that skill of being more observant or being, you know, more closely observant and finding small things within that is something that's going to be transferable outside of lockdown and transferable to different neighborhoods or different projects or different things that you're doing? Or do you just feel like you really know that, that small walk, like the back of your hand now? Well, I do hope that it's transferable and I think it, it's, it's largely dictated by the environment that I'm in, you know, like I think uh, a suburban area has much more nature, for example, than, than certain urban areas. And so it's a different type of uh, change that you can observe. You can observe lots of change with animals and, and plants and trees and, and all that kind of flowers. Whereas if it's a super urban environment, there's maybe not that much changing, uh, but, but in those environments, you have more humans again. So there's, there's always something to be able to focus on. And I do hope to continue uh, shooting work like this because I really, really loved it. And it really gave me a, a whole new appreciation for the world around me, including, and especially in areas that I previously would have perhaps not thought of as that interesting. Did you find yourself trying to include things that would would speak to the time that you're living in, in terms of, I can't think of a good example, but essentially I went for a walk today to uh, test a roll of black and white film I hadn't previously used. And uh, the amount of people that think that it's acceptable to just throw masks on the floor when they're done with them mm. is infuriating. And I, I feel like it's a, a an incredibly British thing to do. It might be common elsewhere, but it just it's it just irritates me beyond belief. But it's very much a sign of the times. Were you looking for things that were sign of the times, or were you trying to avoid that? Uh, I wasn't looking for it, and there also wasn't that much of it to find because, again, kind of the nature of the neighborhood. Uh, there is one photo in the book. No, there are two photos in the book out of eighty six that, if you know that it was shot during the pandemic then you know why those photos are the way they are. For right. example, there's one photo uh, of a playground where um, there's a tire swing and the tire swing is, is chained up against the metal framework with like a police, like one of those yellow police lines. 
right? Um, because uh, they shut down all the playgrounds because they, they didn't want to spread the germs through the kids. And so there's a photo of that in the book, but um, it's not necessary. You know, I know that's why it's set up like, like that, but there could be a million other reasons why it could be set up like that. And other than that, I try, I wasn't looking for it, uh, but there was also not, that much to, oh and there is actually one photo in there of a mask on the ground but that was i think the only mask i saw on the ground <laughs> you should come to come to england especially hampshire you'll honestly i think we could repopulate the earth with masks if you just take a look <laughs> down any average street how many images did you say it was that you took in total over the course of that time about thirty-five thousand, and you whittled that down to 86 so that i mean that just feels like it's going to be a conversation in itself how on earth did you go through that selection process? Well, I had some help. So um, I was able to, um, so I shot both digital and film and I didn't see any of the film images until the whole thing was over um, because I sent the whole, I sent no joke, seven uh, pounds of film to my New York lab from Vancouver. Wow. And so I didn't see any of that stuff until it was over, but I did of course see the digital images that I sh- that I would shoot. So at the end of every day, as part of my routine, I would dump, I would dump those files and I would do a very quick pass where I would just delete all the ones that were not good. And I would edit a few that would uh, jump into my eye. And so that already kind of helped me do like a partial pass. Um, and so by the time I really started curating the book, uh, from down from those 35,000, it was a rather quick process to go from 35,000 to about 2000. Um, and then from 2000 down to 500, 300, 150, 120. Hang on, hang on, hang on a second. Hang on a second. You're, you're saying this, like, this is easy for people to comprehend. Let's give people a chance here. Oh, (laughs) you went from, you went down to, you said 2000 quite right. easily but 2000 to 86 is an enormous jump so yes i mean there's an expression in filmmaking when it comes to like uh, one that they give out quite often to people that are making independent films or they're making their first ever movies where they say you've got to kill your babies yeah k- kill your darlings is how we say it well i think i think i probably come from a rougher background <laughs> um, so the idea being you know don't get too attached to takes or to certain shots if they don't mm-hmm. fit the final product don't wedge them in for the sake of them being in there because you like them on their own yes that is such a jump from even 2000 down to 86 I, I, as a wedding photographer i'll take 2000 images at a wedding and i've got to narrow that down to 4 or 500 which is incredibly easy in comparison to down to 86 how many of the images outside of that 86 do you really did you really have to struggle over not making it in well, what you're saying is completely right that, you know, there are certain images that you will shoot that you have a, um, emotional relationship with, um, and therefore love for, but it doesn't, um, it doesn't serve the story that you're trying to tell with the project in this case with the book. And so, uh, the, you know, the whole premise of the book is that slowing down and noticing these special things, right? So, so the photo has to have that the photo has to have a semblance of noticing something. Um, so that already, you know, it's, I'm not saying it's emotionally easy, but it's mechanically easy to discard a bunch of images that do not fit the concept. Um, so, 
And then what really helped? Are you was sure that- you're not German and not Dutch? Because you're extremely <laughs> you're extremely cold about removing the emotion. No, it's not a removed emo- emotion, but I did have uh, uh, quite a bit of help. So what I did to help me identify the images uh, that were uh, of emotional importance to me, but did not fit the book or were just not that good. Um, is I, I set up a bunch of Zoom calls, which is also very pandemic-y of me uh, and not something that I would have thought to do. Uh, you know, previously I might've sent like a folder of images to to some of you know some of my friends who are photographers whose work I like or whose eye I like, or obviously both. Uh, and um, instead of sending them a bunch of, a big folder with images and saying like, hey, what do you guys think? Uh, what I did was I set up a bunch of one-on-one Zoom calls and I would do a screen share and I would go through um, the f- you know, a folder, not a 1500, uh, that's a little much to ask, but of se- you know several hundred. And then I would be able to see their face and they would be able right. to say, uh, ooh, that one really grabs me or, you know, or well, not, not one that much much. So if, if you know, there were, there were, this is a great technique to remove those darlings, you know, because if there's an image that, that comes by and I did this with 20 different people. Um, so if there's an image that comes by and, you know, 19 people don't really respond to that image, then it's just not that good, you know, or right. it's, just, or, or for whatever reason, it shouldn't be, it should, it shouldn't be in there. So you do have to be ruthless. Um, and my, the whole, what it was important to me is that this is a lasting body of work that I'm proud of that lives in a physical object that I'm proud of that I want people to have on their coffee table, on their bookshelf and look through just the way that you described looking through uh, the photo book uh, occasionally and, and, and go through for inspiration. And so it has to be good. And I don't care about my feelings in the, in regard to like specific images, I care about my feelings about the whole project. So I want to have a final product that is cohesive, that makes sense, that walks the viewer through a narrative that I'm trying to tell them with, you know, without using words. And, and that means some images just can't be in there. And, and yes, yeah, so you have to be ruthless and it's not, it's not easy, but at the same time, it's, it's not that hard either, because if that's your outset, if, if you set out to make a great body of work that is a cohesive story that has a narrative line that you can follow through the sequence that you build, then you know that certain images do not go in there, however much you may like them. And you can do something else with those images. And so I'm working with some of these, you know, some of the images that were cast out of the book, I love, and I'm going to do some other things with them. You know, some of them might end up being prints. Some of them might end up being in, in a compendium. There's all kinds of things that you can do with it, but they didn't fit in this book. And so with the help of my friends, I was able to go from 2000, to 1500 to 200, you know, all the way down to, I think the last number that I got to with the help of friends was maybe like 120, 115. And then on my own, I got rid, well, I, I actually not on my own, my, my designer and my friend, Dan Rubin, he is the designer of the book. And he was also a huge part of helping me, um, stick to the rule of it has to serve the story. So all my friends helped me get it, get it down to 120. And then between Dan and I, we were able to say, well, this one shouldn't be in there. And then we got down to 86. I mean, it's very helpful to have a group of people that A, want to give up the time and B, have enough 
knowledge and uh, enough idea and perspective of what it is that you're trying to do to be able to help in that way. But it's another thing entirely for someone whose name is going to be on the project, on, on, on the product, I guess, at the end of the day, to, to give up a certain amount of control over what is and isn't making it through based on, like you said, reactions from people, other people's opinions and so on. That's something that I do think, and, and again, I think different cultural and different working backgrounds may see different approaches, but I don't see many people that would be willing to give up that much, especially considering, again, for the comparison, people in, in filmmaking, that's a huge collaboration. You don't, you don't see films that are mm-hmm. made by three people. It's an enormous mm-hmm. team, generally. Even the smallest productions are fairly big teams, much bigger than you'd expect. And photography tends to be um, almost a very solo endeavor for a lot of, for, I feel like for the vast majority of people, even if I know plenty of people that photograph people and they think that the process comes entirely back to them and that they're <laughs> basically working with a prop. So I think it says an awful lot about the fact that you were willing to give up control. And it was obviously something you were quite comfortable with. Um, when you look at the project now as a whole, now that you've got it kind of lined up the way that the, the, the way that it's, it's come together, and considering it didn't start off as a conscious effort to create it, is it a good sort of roundup of, of what you saw over the course of that time? Or is it just cohesive within itself? I'm not sure if I understand the difference. Well, I guess for, for it to be cohesive to itself, it, it could have a theme, like you said, the patterns that developed. And the, the, the developing of that pattern could have come, you know, from say two thirds of the way into the end, or it could have come one third into the middle. It could have been like a short period of time where there was a pattern because you were looking for certain compositions. You got into a groove of finding certain things. Maybe the light at that particular point in the season was working out well. And in that way, it could be very cohesive as a project. Whereas the alternative would be, is it something where you feel like you took something from, you know, the first walk to the last walk? There's something sort of spanning the majority of the time that really sums up the time you spent doing it. Yeah, no, definitely the la- the latter. Um, there, uh, I mean, obviously 123 days and 86 photos is not like a photo of every day, but it does yeah. span from the, from the very first walk. There's a photo from the first walk in the book and there's a photo from the last walk in the book. Uh, and so it, it is spread out pretty evenly. Um, so I do think it's a good representation of the time that I spent there and, and, and also just kind of the emotions that I was feeling and, and, and how I kind of translated them through my observations onto the page into this body of work. People keep saying light at the end of the tunnel here, which I do keep reminding people sometimes that could just be the light on a train and you shouldn't get too excited <laughs> about it. But with, uh, with the idea of their light, the light being at the end of the tunnel with regards to the pandemic and there's the possibility that we could be seeing a, a way out at some point. Um, do you feel like this is something that you would continue to consider as a potential project? This you know, taking a set amount of time and a, a certain area and just photographing it in a more methodical, slow way um, as, as another project? Or is this something that you feel like is really confined to the circumstance in which it was created? No, I'd absolutely love to do more of this kind of work. Yeah. It depends on, it depends on like um, how, I guess, a, a location inspires me. Um, it helps if you're completely new to a place like I was with Vancouver, because that means that there's 
you know, I have to actually discover everything. Um, so I think, yeah, I would, you know, I love the idea of being dropped somewhere and doing this again somewhere else. Now we need to obviously make sure because I'm trying as hard as I can to force people to like things that I like, because then I can, <laughs> I can basically just create a world that I want to live in, which is where everyone likes the same thing as me, which is in, in no way challenging or difficult, which is, <laughs> which is fantastic. Cause everything at the moment seems to be challenging and difficult. Um, when, where, how, why, and who for the book being available, where can people get it and, and, and how, and so on. So the book, um, I'm doing, uh, I'm launching a pre-order for the book on March 30th. Um, that will launch, uh, you know, the first people to find out about that will be uh, the subscribers to my newsletter process, which can be found on uh, readprocess.co, C-O. Uh, and um, soon after that, I will let other people know, uh, you know, through my Instagram. But there, the the what actually ended up happening was, I fell so in love with the process of making this book, you know, not just the photo making part of the book, but the sequencing, the uh, curation, the, you know, coming up with the design language put together with Dan Rubin, the designer, uh, all the way to picking out what type of paper fit these images best. Because mm -hmm. there's a million types of paper out there. Uh, down to what type of cloth I wanted on the cover because it's a hardcover um, cloth bound book um, down to should it have a debossed or an embossed or no bossed uh, cover and all those little decisions. I, I just love it. And so I've worked on uh, plenty of other projects uh, as a, as a curator and just like helping other people make photo books. This is the first time I did a photo book from start to finish. And I was very fortunate to be able to do that with Dan Rubin, who I mentioned already as a designer. And I loved working with him so much that I actually suggested uh, that we start a publishing imprint. And so this will actually be the first book uh, out of that publishing imprint that I'm starting with Dan and the imprint is called new style. And so the website for that, which doesn't exist yet, but uh, will when we launch this pre-order is newstyle.co, And that will be, um, where the shop lives, where people can do the pre-order. And so I'm really excited about it. Um, not only just to share the book, but also just to, sh to share the whole process. Everybody that pre-orders the book will get a special um, making of the book zine that no one else will be able to get. It, it'll, it'll come with the book in the pre-order. Uh, there's, there's a regular version of the book and there's a special edition of the book. And there's a very, very special edition. There will be 10 copies of the very, very special edition, uh, which will come with a unique one of one peel apart Polaroid from the project because part of the project was shot on peel apart Polaroid. Wow. Yeah. So that's uh, very special for me because I love shooting peel apart Polaroids and it makes me sad every time I do it because, <laughs> because you know, at some point I won't be able to anymore due to the fact that they don't make that film anymore. Yeah. And I've so, so therefore I've never once in my life parted with an actual, uh, photo from, from, from a shot on that film. Um, and for the listeners who don't know the peel apart Polaroid is the old fashioned Polaroid where you, you shoot it, it, it develops for a little while and then you peel a skin off and then you reveal the photo. So it's not like the, the Polaroids that you might know from like similar to Instax. So that means that there's only one copy just like a regular Polaroid, but there's only one copy, which means 
giving away a copy means I, I don't have it anymore. And I'm an obsessive archivist. And so uh, it's something that I've never done before, but it felt right to do it for this project. So what I ended up doing was for, um, I kept track of a lot of the things that I photographed during these daily walks on, on, a, on a little Google map. And so by the end of it, in the last week, I was able to look at my Google map with all the little dots on it. And I would have like a little comment like, oh, this is where the classic car was, or this is where the, the horse is or whatever, all these little things. And I, I revisited uh, some of those locations with the peel apart camera and uh, recreated some of the shots so that for the very special edition of the book, people will be able to have one of those unique uh, Polaroids that they can frame and hang on their wall. Well, that's a tremendous amount to give up, especially if you're going to be obsessive about, you know, not only the Polaroid sort of disappearing as it is, but also, you know, like you said, as someone that's also quite obsessive about archiving things, I can't quite get my head around giving up that level of, um, that level of control to someone else that they have hold of it. But that's fantastic. And for those 10 people, that's going to be extremely lucky. Um, so everyone needs to go right now and 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 obviously subscribe to your newsletter the process newsletter so that they can be uh within those people that are the first to know about it and they can do the pre-orders one thing i do want to ask you though is is coming out of this obviously there are people that do there's there's like a i'm I'm kind of obsessed with films at the moment that's one of the ways i've kept myself sane during this third lockdown in england and and uh i've went on a bit of a daniel day lewis run and he's someone that seems to retire every time that he does a film because he feels (laughs) sort of chronically worn out and fatigued from taking on the role and um he seems to sort of disappear and need a a vast break from acting after doing each film at the end of a project like this do you feel like incentivized to go and do the next thing are you do you feel excited to get going again or do you do you have daniel day lewis syndrome and you kind of want to take a fairly big break and just see how this is received no but no i don't but i understand why he does because i think the way that he uh, communicates and, and interacts with his practice and his craft is, is just a whole nother, you know, not level, but just a whole nother method. I mean, literally he's a meth actor, right? Which means that he mm-hmm. actually has to disappear into another person. You know, he, he's also known to stay in character for the entire period and take making a movie takes weeks, months, you know, it's weeks for a very short movie and months and months, sometimes even more than a year. And so to, that is emotionally completely exhausting. If you have that approach to the craft, I can imagine. And so, so he loses himself into the craft, whereas I'm finding myself through the craft. So I don't ever want to stop. And that can be a problem (laughs) in another way, you know, he might need a really long break, I probably should take a break sometimes, but I'm just always going and I have multiple projects going on at the same time because I just can't stop. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, I I think as well, like seeing so much of the world kind of come to a standstill. And and I think America obviously had the big uh, uprising politically over what was going over there, going on over there with, with sort of race issues, issues and the police and, um, in England, we've had a similar thing recently to do with um, to do with women, and on top of that, you've got all of the weird intricacies of what a pandemic and lockdowns throw up. And I think a lot of people are incentivized to photograph big events when they happen. They want to be the person that captures the photo that sums up that event, or they want to capture a photo that you know uniquely takes perspective on something that's going on. And unfortunately, it feels like we've got a world event happening 
every single day at the moment. So I think a lot of people are probably uh, very heavily incentivized and a break might do some people some good. Let's, let's do the links. Let's make sure people know where they can go to find you for all of this. So we need newsletter, we need the observers, we need your website, and we need to know where they can go for the book and all of that. So just please plug away. All right. So newsletter is to be found at readprocess.co. And the observers is theobservers.co with an S at the end, not the observer, but plural, observers.co. Um, uh, if you'd like to find me on Instagram, my handle on there is Wesley at Wesley, W-E-S-L-E-Y. And um, yeah, I think to find out about the pre-order, because it's a limited edition release, and I think uh, I think folks will be really excited about it. I think the best way to do is just sign up for the newsletter because that's also where I keep track of, or not keep track, but that's where I'm documenting the process of actually creating the book. So if you're interested in what it takes to uh, create a photo book from beginning to end, that's where I am cataloging that work as well. So it's not the only thing I write about in the newsletter, but it is uh, something that I uh, that I include in all of those newsletters just to see like, Oh, now we're on this step and this is what it takes to get to, to the next step. So if you find that interesting, then I would just say sign up for a newsletter and then you'll also be the first one to know uh, when the pre-order goes live, which will, which should be March 30th. But the link for that will be in that newsletter. Well, I mean, you're, you're going to have a, hopefully a big rush of people come in for that. And I a hundred percent encourage them to do that. One thing that is fascinating is that you have at Wesley on Instagram, which I'm imagining, and I think I've seen a few times, is probably an issue because people to get just a first name is kind of rare because they tend to be picked up quite quickly, usually by celebrities. And I think you probably have an issue with people tagging you in the wrong things, right? Yeah, that can be quite fun sometimes. It, it has gone from being very annoying to <laughs> to, <laughs> to now. Uh, now I'm just kind of intrigued by it because for some reason that I'm trying to still understand more clearly. Um, I would say 98% of the times that I am mistagged in photos or bio, and we're talking specifically about Instagram here, photos or bios or wherever people put names, uh, it, 98% is Brazilian people. Wow. And that's so weird to me. Uh, and, and I know that Wesley is, it's not a common name in Brazil, but it's also not uncommon. There's, you know, and there's also a famous singer, Wesley, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly because I do not speak Portuguese, but Wesley Safadao or Safado. Um, And there's also a somewhat successful soccer player who plays somewhere in the English Premier League, actually, I think, or maybe the championship now, uh, whose first name is Wesley, but that's what it says on the back of his shirt. Um, So sometimes it's because of that, but I am in so many bios as, as people's husbands and, uh, and what, or friends or whatever. And it's always, <laughs> it blows my mind because how do you not see that when you type the name, that is clearly not the avatar of your friend. That is, you know, my picture is pretty strange. My avatar picture. So you're, you're going to know that it's not your friend. Um, <laughs> and so I'm very amused. And sometimes I like to be, playful about it. And I, and I kind of, if it's in a comment or in a caption, I'll occasionally I'll reply and make a little bit of a joke out of it. Uh, and it, it can be quite fun because people don't expect it. And so there was like, uh, the other day there was a, uh, a pregnancy shoot 
quite beautiful, actually, uh, a pregnant <laughs> woman, uh, quite artistic with nice light. And, um, you know, my name was tagged in there and I just wrote as a comment. I was like, it's not mine. It just as a little, <laughs> as a little joke or like there was one fun interaction that I had the other day where, um, someone caught a fish and yeah, I saw the fish. I did know, see the, the fish. The, the 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 company that makes the the maybe the whatever tool he used to catch this fish like had a picture of this guy up, and he in the caption it had me, and the guy also happened to have a beard, which I also have, and so I commented back on it as if I was the person, and I made a little story out of it about how I was so honored to have caught this fish, and <laughs> it was quite an endeavor. I almost died, but I managed to get it out of the water, and so sometimes you know, in my, in a more, in a moment where I'm pandemic bored, I will, I will do that for just to amuse myself. And then oftentimes it also amuses those people because they didn't even realize that they did that. And I guess we have to be fair then if you're having trouble pronouncing a Portuguese name, we have to give people the benefit of the doubt on how to pronounce your last name. So, oh, absolutely. For, for, because I come from a country that says Vincent van Gogh, which I know annoys the Dutch to no end. How do we say your name correctly? That wasn't so bad though for, for Vincent. Uh, my last name is for Uh, so that is quite challenging for many non-Dutch speaking people. And, uh, I get all kinds of uh, funny, uh, different versions, but it, uh, I'm amused by all of them. It's not something that I get upset about. <laughs> well, as someone that had to literally change, uh, the name that my business was run under so that people in England could pronounce it. I, I understand your pain. Um, and a massive thank you for taking the time to do this. Everyone, please go sign up for the newsletter. Please go and get the pre-orders for that book and save one for me. And uh, yeah, massive thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks for having me. Such a short time.
close your 